Welcome back to the Russia Contingency. This is part two of my conversation with Justin Jack Watling, and it picks up right where the other left off. Just to come back to the the point about if you're a commander and you're used to having all of these assets organically, you're better at using them. Theoretically, that should be the case. Um, But two things. One, when the BTGs have been brought together, the battalion tactical groups, those uh, units have just been like dragged with their enablers bolted on. Uh, And very often they didn't even know the officers and the units that were attached to them, right? So there's an issue there of um, not having trust, history, working with those people. And the second issue is battalion staffs or battalion tactical group staffs are small. And there's a lot of expertise that you need. And those people need to be fantastically trained. And if you look at the, to be able to actually just manage all of those different assets that you suddenly get bolted on. So what we've observed is that uh, a lot of those officers have been completely overwhelmed and not actually able to properly integrate a lot of those capabilities, even though they do own them. Another issue is that um, for a lot of those systems, uh, the Russians have a real limited number of technical specialists who are not officers. And so as they've taken attrition and officers have been pulled up into headquarters to do officer-like things, writing orders, etc., um, the level of junior leadership in Russian formations has plummeted. And as a result, what we've been observing is an increasing use of Russian capabilities uh, as concentrations of specialism, right? So like electronic warfare units doing electronic warfare stuff, artillery units doing artillery stuff. Um, and unless there's pretty much a brigade or divisional headquarters sitting above you to do the planning, then there actually isn't very much uh, combined arms activity going on because there just isn't the training, expertise, familiarity, and junior leadership to make that work dynamically. This is a big challenge between theory and practice. And to different extents, all of us got aspects of the Russian military wrong. I, I don't necessarily talk about performance in a specific context. I mean, in, in terms of uh, capability, training level, quality, whatnot. And from my point of view, to be honest, the field has been incredibly introspective about this. And it's been a lot of folks going back to why they thought what they thought. Was their process logically traceable? Was their interpretation of their evidence the best it could have been, given that the information was very limited and, and people have to appreciate it's not like you have 100% insight that you can peer into the Russian forces, and there's a lot of things that you're trying to aggregate that you're not sure about. So it's clear that the Russian military, in terms of force structure, battalion tactical groups, uh, were reduced in personal size. They were woefully short on infantry when they went in. There were cuts made to them as they were expanded in terms of the number, that is the average size of the battalion tactical group that the Russian military could produce was much smaller. I and others have discussed this in the past. The the groups themselves were heavily mechanized, right? They had a lot of metal, but they had much fewer people in terms of support. And as a tier kind of both partial mobilization military and a tiered readiness military, the, the personnel available was a difficult mix to manage for a lot of formations and to employ them in war and also try to avoid employing conscripts, which were often shuttled off to combat service support, you know, MTO units, truck drivers and the like. like. How could you run a war without the people that drive the trucks to supply the units in the war, so on and so forth? Look, can I, can I talk to you a bit about, and you, and you just got into this right now, that I find personally fascinating, which is what does the Russian military and the force structure look like at this stage? 
And we had a period where the longer the war went on, the less of the Russian military was in the war. That is, the more we saw LDNR mobilized personnel, Rosguardia, Wagner guys, and the less we saw anything that looked like a cohesive Russian force. Now we have mobilized personnel. We have the initial, let's say, 40, 50,000 plus deployed to stabilize the lines. But we're getting back to a force, maybe, that has a mix of regulars and those who are mobilized and being deployed. What is a way to think about the Russian force structure now in this war? So I think one of the interesting things is how how badly the Russians understood their own military. Um, just before the war, General Gerasimov told his British counterpart uh, that the Russian military had 136 fully capable battalion tactical groups that it could deploy, uh, and that he, he changed his line a couple of times. In one land, he said, the Russian military is the second most powerful military in the world. And then he said, we've achieved conventional parity with the United States huh. at different times. Um, but the reality of the BTG was, I wouldn't necessarily say that the picture was they were all under strength. I would say that because they were force generated out of different units who had different compositions in terms of the level of conscripts, et cetera, et cetera, the BTGs were not uniform at all, right? right. They differed considerably. Some of them were twice the strength of others. And yet from a planning point of view, they were treated as though they were uniform and they were given the same kind of task, irrespective, makes no sense. irrespective of their composition. Secondly, when they actually started to take a lot of casualties, because the Russian military had decided that the battalion tactical group was the thing, uh, they would go, oh no, this unit's broken down. It's no longer the strength of a battalion tactical group, so I'll merge it with this other one. And if you have really good junior leadership, okay, you can manage that process. If you don't, and that's a particular weakness in the Russian military, you just end up with a bunch of people with no unit cohesion who don't trust each other, right? And so the BTG process in the first and second phase of the war, both when the main effort was against Kiev and when it was against the Donbass, just was a busted flush. It failed. And where we really saw it die as how the Russians are actually fighting is in the offensive against Donbass, where I would say they shifted from... Uh, this process that was trying to use BTGs to one where you essentially had um, brigade headquarters managing brigade artillery groups or artillery tactical groups um, where there was a kind of centralized process and they were using their own ISR. And then you had a bunch of independent companies. The tank company, we saw tanks shift from operating at platoon to operating as companies of 10. Um, and then various kinds of company, and they were used in different ways, right? So you, on the one hand, had LNR, DNR troops. They were often used to fix and force Ukrainian positions to light up. Mm -hmm. You had reconnaissance troops and Spetsnaz companies who would go and designate targets to get precision artillery against them, like Krasnopol. Um, you would have Wagner companies and Vedevir companies who would be used to assault positions. And very often this would be done sequentially with the artillery. So you would force everyone to light up, fix them, smash them with the artillery all day, do, a do them with a deliberate assault with those Vedevir companies. Once you took the ground, you'd put the LNR and DNR into the taken positions and then withdraw the Vedevir so that they didn't get hit in any counterattacks. Um, really, really attritional, lost lots of people, although very disproportionate in terms of where they took the casualties. Um, and now, it's not just that I would say the company is actually the fighting unit of the Russian military at this point in terms of scale, um, 
but we're also seeing a kind of warlordization of a lot of formations. So even at higher echelon, force generation is now being done by people like Prigozhin. Um, and the GRU are not just using Wagner, they're setting up more PMCs. So they see Wagner as a successful model, you know, that came from the 14th uh, directorate at the GRU and under General Alexeyev, um, originally then branched off. They are now replicating that model in mm. other formations to try and force generate what looks like something that's more successful to them. But actually you're seeing this kind of proliferation of personality-based private armies. Um, with lots of independent companies formed, as I say, usually with the brigade managing the fight uh, and owning the artillery and the division doing the logistics. But this has to be supported overall in the war effort, right, by some kind of logistics systems. No matter who forms companies, at the end of the day, they have to be supported and they have to be somehow coordinated, right? That's a main director of operations job, or that's the theater commander job, or that's the job of higher level command. And I personally fully agree that the BTG turned out to be an ineffective unit formation, the way, the way that they were attempting to do it. And in many respects, they couldn't generate the BTGs they thought they could. The BDGs weren't composed the way of, of the way, at least, that the Russian military intended them to be. And they were supposed to have, you know, habitual training relationships that they didn't, to be perfectly honest. Yeah, that, that was that was totally not a thing. <laughs> yeah, okay, it, it was not a thing, but I'm going to be very honest. Um, I was not personally vested deep in terms of what I was following in that aspect of the BTG, but I had colleagues that literally were writing that. Right. And 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 I fully appreciate it was the thing, but I just want to say there was a reason there were assessments that suggested that it was. Okay. And it turned out to be very much not true. I mean Gerasimov was claiming to to our officials that that's how it worked. Yeah. And and defense attaches in Moscow were being taken around and shown these exercises, but they were always at very small scale, right? Yeah. The bit that they were being shot. There, there's an aspect, there's a twofold aspect, but the Russian military is phenomenal in terms of military culture in falsifying a lot of reporting to itself. This is not a question of corruption. I often find colleagues that they don't quite know what they want to point to as a problem. They'll say corruption is a large hand-waving mechanism for whatever problem they're trying to identify. But the truth is there are different problems in the Russian armed forces. Every major institutional military has rot in it. The Russian military has more, more in it than others. And one of the fundamental ones I see is the falsification of reporting in terms of combat operation, tasking, and performance falsification of readiness. Readiness padding is commonplace, but in the Russian military and any partial mobilization military is going to be ubiquitous. And also the the nature of a system that fundamentally is lying to itself about what's going on in its force structure and wh what it is actually doing and what it's capable of. Yeah, I mean, there's a really interesting kind of common theme <clears throat> when you talk to the, the, the Ukrainian intelligence folks who, who have spent you know decades looking at the Russian system uh, partly as a mirror of their own, of course, and you know, trying to look at the differences because for them, because there are so many similar routes, I guess the differences stand out more. But you know, one of the, the consistent themes is, you know, it, it's not just that unscru unscrupulous people within the system will over-report readiness results in combat, you know, whatever it happens to be, but it's that it, even if you have the best intention in the world in the Russian system, it is a prerequisite to be promoted that you not only over-report what's gone well and minimize what's gone badly, but that you frame it in such a way as to 
fit the preconceived notion of what you think your commanding officer already thinks. And so even if you are a good officer who really cares about their battalion's performance, you're going to inflate things because the theory would be, well, otherwise someone else who's willing to inflate things, who's also a bad officer, will get promoted. And it's important that I become the person who runs this because I actually care about it. Um, and so in the air environment, for example, it's, it's difficult to know exactly how far that goes. But, you know, there is already a huge conspiracy of optimism within most Western air forces, which is just straightforwardly the fact that half the instructors will be operating on a waiver at any given time for their co for their, their currency, because they have to, because otherwise you know, there's just not enough airframe hours to go around. But if you transpose that into a system where promotion and the entire oversight mechanism for different reasons both operate under their own different conspiracy of optimism you can easily see where where all the problems stack up um especially for something that is ultimately in the air domain at least incredibly technical something they've never tried to do before and something which for external analysts you know the people like myself who who went into looking at the russian military are attracted by the difference they're attracted by how unusual the way they appeared to go about things was, both from a technical and an operational point of view. But therefore, you're always second-guessing yourself, at least pre-war, about thinking, yeah, but don't write them off just because you can't see them doing what we would be doing in that scenario. Yeah, you have to assume that they're doing a lot of the, the good work, even though you can't see it. Yeah, the job we're going to ask is to, is to figure out where that military's both capability and performance in that specific context really lie and not simply to judge on the basis of they are not like a western air force they don't think like a western air force they're not optimized like a western air force and therefore they don't execute like a western air force because the simplest answer and to be honest you're not doing much services in analyst in in saying that the russian military isn't doing well because they're not like us and if they were more like us they would do well and the ukrainians are doing much better by just let's say relatively speaking because they're more like us and my answer to that and the answer of i'll be frank a good colleague dave johnson who was recently passed and is a very well-known army historian and he and i had many conversations about the subject over the past year um I'm very, very sad. I think he's a huge loss to our community. But as a, as, as somebody who who's a really good military historian, was that that is, those are not the lessons we need to learn, right? We need to think a lot harder about about these problems, and we need to not walk away from this by saying the Russians are bad just because they're different, and Ukrainians are doing well because they're more similar to us. Because actually, neither of those two stories are true. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, the the classic one here is you know, there's a, a group of former US officers, senior officers who, you know, went on trips to Ukraine and were shown stuff, uh, usually quite brief trips when they were in command, who've come away from this and said, you know, the Ukrainian the Ukrainian armed forces have a Western non-commissioned officer corps and that's why they're so effective tactically. Uh, you know, and I remember sitting down with the uh command sergeant major of one of their brigades just before the war and have spoken to him since. And him explaining, he was like, we treat the NCOs completely differently in every unit because we have no idea how this is supposed to work. There's no mm -hmm. cultural memory of how this works. These posts exist, but actually our contract system is still one in which people can sign up and extend for like two years at a time. And so it's not yet a professional cadre, it's just older guys. We have a PME system that we're designing, but no one's really been put through it. 
Um, and, you know, some people just think we're additional officers and some people think we're, well, they don't know what to think. Um, and actually putting aside what it was like in the best Ukrainian units that had spent a lot of time working with NATO units in a way on peacekeeping and doing all sorts of other things, the Ukrainian military's expanded. It's more than doubled during the course of this conflict, right? And the people who've been pulled in were definitely not professional NCOs. And so the idea that there's some Ukrainian NCO corps that's holding this whole thing together is just is just projection. It's a complete myth. Absolutely. Now, junior leadership is actually quite good in the Ukrainian military. They have a real shortage of battalion and brigade staffs. That's where their leadership is weak. Um, or not necessarily weak, but just not... They don't have the scale of those staffs for all the units that they've generated. So they have people who are good, but they are only they only have a certain number of them. Um, the junior leadership is good, particularly at company level. Uh, and actually, what you're seeing is a lot of like colonels being pushed in to support small scale operations a lot of the time and providing that personal leadership. But um, but it's it's not built around the Western approach at all, and that's fine, right? The Ukrainian military is effective because of its own culture and its own history and, and how it does that stuff. It doesn't need to track how we've made it work. Yeah. First, if it works, it works. Second, I think that's a military that succeeded by first um, deference to veterancy, those who have previously served, and second, a more horizontal democratic structure in discussing COAs and mission plans with those. Maybe they're NCOs, maybe they're not. It doesn't matter. They have time and service. They're veterans. They're older, and and that has significance in the unit. Absolutely, uh, and you know the fact that lots of civilians have come into the military. Uh, I remember sitting in a meeting where a mission was being planned, and uh, a, a private was just like, "This plan's not going to work because of electronic warfare issues. You know, this is the threat. These are the problems." And the colonel who was running this. Um, small company sized operation hmm. just when okay like because basically three three geeks started to have an argument about electronic warfare and everyone else was sitting there kind of going we, we have no idea what you're saying um but the colonel just went look guys go and have a smoke outside decide what you want us all to do come back in and tell us what the plan is because you know you're the expert on this you know about it uh and we'll just follow your plan that's fine we trust you um so you ended up with a, a private a corporal and and uh somebody who didn't even work in the military coming in and saying this is how you're going to run your comms and a colonel and several other senior officers who were there were like yep cool that's fine yeah the number one thing i saw in ukraine in the military effort was how ground up it was and i enjoyed it i enjoyed the chaos of it um uh, and 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 it worked and it worked for ukraine which is all that matters at the end of the day when you're in the war if it works for you then that's brilliant um, but one of the things that drives me nuts is the kind of projection of, of our own military in wanting to see themselves in any successful military effort in order to validate their own structure or their own approaches or their own policies. So, I mean, I, I just, I just got to chip in here. I mean, one of the things that, um, you know, it, it, there's a real projection thing going on in a lot of air power debates around the war in Ukraine because essentially the air power position on both sides has been mutual denial, at least of effect of ability to be effective at scale on the battlefield. Um, there is this sort of narrative from folks who are generally very well intentioned, but who are almost air power advocates, let's say, as opposed to necessarily trying to analyze the situation dispassionately, who say essentially what's happening in Ukraine can be defined as neither side understands air power and therefore they've, they're have they not employing it right and it's led to this messy 
ground fight, which is it's it, it it's to be honest kind of arrogant, but it's also it's a huge projection exercise of this is not how we the West have to be fair generally unbelievably successfully employed air power since 1940 onwards. But we've made it the center of our firepower and our ISR and, and our preparation for maneuver. The fact that the Russians and the Ukrainians don't do that and actually don't have the capacity to do that uh, in terms of their, their technical capabilities, the way it's all set up and the way they run their joint operations, it's not that they misunderstand air power per se. There's not some granular truth that exists about it. It's the, the lesson to take out of it would be they don't have the capacity to do that this way and the implications are thus what would it mean for us who rely much more heavily on air power if we faced a similar kind of denial? Because that would be a very different implication for our force structure as it has been vice the, the, either the Ukrainians or the Russians who are both primarily artillery and armor armies anyway, and who never relied on responsive CAS in effect for the majority of their firepower and the way that we have built the entire Western military instrument. Um, so, yeah, it bothers me not just in terms of the way that we look at analyzing their performance, but also the way that the lessons learned are, are being kind of shaped and bandied around. Mm -hmm. People are trying to take their own kind of pre-existing philosophical position and cherry pick bits out of the Ukraine experience to justify it. Yeah, and, and their early lessons are often wrong, and they're and they're often incomplete at best, and and people basically use them for for arguments they they already want to make or their own predilections. Um, I think, and one of the challenges definitely in the West is that, you know, we are air power focused. We do have an air power mafia in our various communities. One of the things that I definitely learned from watching this war, and this is my own personal lesson, that uh, whatever we think of of. NATO, it is clear to me that without the United States in a leading, integrating role, providing many of the enablers, but most importantly, the organizational structure to conduct uh, air operations, it's very difficult for me to see European air forces on their own. And you may disagree, because it's a chauvinistic perspective, fine, um, being being able to execute at scale. So... I would slight. I I don't disagree with the substance behind the comment, but I I would actually twist it a bit and say the U.S. air forces in Europe have exactly the same core problems because although they do have the enablers and the command and control infrastructure to run the large complex air ops that we depend on, they are centralized and impossible to protect against Russian long-range precision fires at the scale that those would be employed. So if you actually go and talk to a lot of the really high-end US Air Force even um, frontline units in Europe, their perspective is, if we get in a shooting war with the Russians, our big centralized combined air operation centers will be hit. We don't have the capacity to do effective dynamic targeting cell processes at wing level, and therefore we'll be stuck, even though we have fantastic capability and fantastic equipment, and a force employment model that makes sense, right. we actually won't be able to run it effectively because we've over-centralized all the glue that makes it work. That's both a commentary on a lack of European organic capacity, because the fact that the US is, is so essential to all of that working, but it's also just the way that we've pared down air power to be the efficient source of overmatch, right? For for cost reasons, yeah. And and if you want to, if you want to look at whose air force in Europe is probably most prepared for something like this, I would say Finland and Sweden. 
right? Because they undoubtedly they have both the organic capacity to plan what they need in terms of their own national defense, but also they have designed their militaries to be resilient. And if there's one lesson from Ukraine which really carries across for NATO and really in a Indo-Pacific context as well, or in, or a Middle Eastern one, is that there's no sanctuary on the modern battlefield. Range is not a protection against the ability for a sufficient number of munitions to land on you. So if you are building your force around single points of failure, it will fail because the enemy can make it fail. And that's true for the Ukrainian Air Force. They survived because they were able to disperse from their airfields and run their air operations uh, and maintenance away from those main targets. And you can even flip it around and point to Saki Air Base and say, and, and Kherson for the, the, the frontal uh, deployment of helicopters twice, and say that mm -hmm. even for the Ukrainians, before they had a really effective long-range precision strike capability in range, they were still able to inflict really serious losses on Russian aircraft at fixed base locations. And that's for a force that has amazing layered GBAD and, you know, <laughs> or, and also lots of operating locations. So, you know, that, 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 you know, just to reinforce, yeah, your air power, you can still rely on air power if you're willing to make the investment in CD. Look, could the US Air Force wipe out the Russian army in Ukraine? Yeah, absolutely. It would take it a month to prep up the forces there and there'd be nuclear escalation implications and all sorts. But could it do it on a conventional force on force like comparison? Yeah, absolutely. But the, the question is, are you prepared to pay that cost to actually have a robust capability to do the seed deed and then employ air power at that scale? Which is still probably the most cost effective way of the, doing the firepower, but it's not the way our air forces are configured particularly in Europe, but also the US. And if not, you will need to configure your entire military differently because you need a different answer. Just on that sanctuary point, you know, the Russians basically had a logistic system where you had contractorization up to a, a combined arms army and then uh, divisional logistics would move material to forward uh, stockpile positions, which were to support usually two combat loads within a 50 kilometer radius was kind of what these warehouses provided. Uh, and then you move the material directly to the units and the units would then fight with the material they had organically. It meant that they couldn't do shoot and scoot with their artillery because they couldn't move the ammunition quickly mm -hmm. enough. The guns could displace, the ammunition couldn't. Right. Um, but this was a you know very complex layered supply process that was working efficiently. Uh, we were tracking one railway station um, where in a 19-day period, there were 13,600 tons of fuel moved by the Russians through that one railway station, right? So like the volume of material is huge. As soon as, as, soon as long-range precision strike showed up through HIMARS and, yep. and Gimla, uh, on the Ukrainian side, this whole supply situation was unpicked, right? And the Russians had to shift from having their supply bases 50 kilometers from, the, from their positions to over 100. Um, it has removed their ability for offensive maneuver, et cetera because they just can't concentrate the material to be able to build up momentum. Now, if you look at how Western forces, actually including the US Army, do logistics, they have all the same problems. And there's a lot of combat arms officers out there talking about rapid maneuver and very clever stuff, but very often there isn't even a logistics officer in the room when those concepts are being worked out. And if you're talking about an Indo-Pacific context where- Oh yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So, so these are problems that we need to look at and say, hang on a minute, 
like we have some problems here too and conceptually we need to make sure that we don't fall into the same trap yeah there's um, a lot of science fiction on our side when i hear about distributed forces when i hear about uh inside forces distributed logistics it's very clear to me that a lot of the operational concepts have never haven't made full contact with an actual logistician yeah exactly um and the lesson here is that that's precisely where we need to focus the other point i think is when we look at um the risk of escalation in the Indo-Pacific and readiness of European armies. Uh, there's a lot of people in Europe at the moment looking at the Russians and saying, they're a busted flush, we don't have to worry about them anymore, you know, no longer a threat, blah, blah, blah. Um, firstly, I think that that overlooks the continuity of intent in the Russian government. And therefore, you know, if you, if you said how big a problem with the Iranians, people would say, oh, a big problem, right? And they'd be right. Um, even though economically, militarily, they're far lower down the list than the Russians, right? So if that's a problem, then I think the argument that the Russian problem's gone away is very, very arrogant. But the other issue is, if something happens in the Indo-Pacific and you take US logs and enablement and stockpiles out of the equation in Europe, then all of a sudden the kind of rose-tinted, we're all very secure narrative looks really hollow. And I think this is a turning point for European security, which is, are European countries going to get real about actually providing for their own security, full stop. Because the guarantee from the US is just not realistic in an Indo-Pacific context. Uh, and if we agree that there is a continuity of threat from Russia because of continuity of intent, then actually that that's down to us, right? That's on us to get serious. On that note, I think we can keep going. We can keep going for a long time. Um, but let's, let's wrap it up. I think it's been a wonderful conversation. I'm I'm really thankful that both of you made it out to DC and we're actually all sitting around the table, the table actually in my house and benefiting at least from from a whiskey collection while we're having this discussion. And uh, we'll we'll continue the conversation another time. Thanks both of you for for joining me. Thanks for having us. Yeah, indeed. It's good to be here.